even if we take these technologies as given, they could be used in many different ways. But here we're dealing with a situation in which it's really financial calculations that guide the choices being made by synthetic biologists and molecular biologists. So insofar as kind of NASDAQ becomes a life-shaping force and something that these financial indexes and the calculations of venture capitalists really become the allocating factor of which research programs get funding. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about the politics of health, medicine and the body. In this episode, I'm speaking with Erica Borg and Amadeo Villacante about genomic science, genome editing and the biotech industry. Before we get started, I'd like to once again express my solidarity with the Palestinian people and join with the millions of others calling for an immediate ceasefire. If you're listening to this on the day that it uploads, I hope to see you on the march in London on Saturday. Erica Borg is a geographer and political ecologist based at King's College London, and their research focuses on the relations between capitalism, colonialism, patriarchy, and ecological crisis. Amadeo Pilacante is a researcher at the Nova University in Lisbon, and his writings interrogate the nexus of extraction, exploitation, and expropriation that fuels the contemporary world market. He's the author of two books, The Pirate Myth and New Mercenaries, and together Erica and Amadeo are the authors of Mutant Ecologies, Manufacturing Life in the Age of Genomic Capital, which published earlier this year with Pluto Books. In this conversation, we discuss genetic science and gene editing technology. So technologies such as CRISPR, which allow scientists to modify the DNA of a living organism. I ask Erica and Amadeo what a Marxist analysis of this technology can tell us about the relations between eugenics, capital accumulation, and the development of science. We also explore some of the other reactionary responses to these technologies, mainly from the Christian right, and how that analysis differentiates from Erica and Amadeo's analysis, specifically with regards to ideas about nature and what is quote-unquote natural. Finally, if you'd like to support Red Medicine, you can do so by going to the link in the show notes and signing up for a monthly donation. You could also give the show a positive review on Apple or Spotify. And very importantly, you could also post about this episode or other episodes you've enjoyed on social media. I'd like to say a huge thank you to all of the people who have signed up for a monthly donation already. Your support is greatly appreciated. In your book, you document the emergence of genomic science, genome editing, uh, and kind of how it runs in parallel to industrial capitalism. And we're going to cover a lot of that. I don't think we're going to have time to cover the full history in the way that you do cover it in the book. So I thought we could maybe start by looking at the 1970s and how sort of gene editing technology changes in that decade and kind of the technologies that emerged then and and kind of what we're really talking about with the different technologies that we're going to be talking about in this conversation. I think, yeah, the 1970s is a, is a good starting point to think about 
the origins or at least the development of uh, mutagenic techniques. No? That is generally defined as techniques that are geared towards inducing artificial mutations in the genome of uh, living organisms. Obviously, there were examples of mutagenic techniques that were used before the 1970s, in particular, like radiation breeding that was introduced already in the 1930s, and that by the 1970s was already widely used, especially in agriculture, as a way of uh, inducing artificial mutations that nevertheless were, were always random. So they... Uh, the exposure to radiations would accelerate genetic mutations, and therefore it was possible to use radiations as a way of inducing random mutations and uh, kind of hope for the best, hope for the emergence of useful mutations. Um, but it's only with the 1970s, really, that you can start talking about genetic engineering in terms of a form of, a form of labor, really. So a form of labor in the sense of being able to exactly plan in the abstract a mutation that you would desire and try to implement it through technical instruments. Now, what were those instruments? In, in particular, it was enzymes. So restriction enzymes and ligase enzymes were introduced in the 1970s in the biotech industry. And in particular, the research of Herbert Boyer and Stephen Cohen were central to that, which is interesting because Herbert Boyer then would become kind of one of the kind of central figures in the launching of the first biotech industry, Genentech, in the mid of the 1970s. So that this already shows quite clearly how from the very beginning, in fact, the genetic engineering was at once kind of like a scientific form of research, a scientific project, but it was also basically immediately uh, also a business project. So in the 1970s, exactly, this, this is why like the first kind of forms of genetically engineered organisms are transgenic organisms, because generally what was done was to kind of recombine already existing genetic traits. And, uh, and, and this is from the beginning, like the business program of Genentech as well. You, you can find it online, even the, the business plan of Genentech is exactly to create new forms of living organisms that may be useful for, for business and commercialize them. It is that simple. And just to jump in on that as well, I think we talk about genomic capital in the subtitle, but also throughout the book. So maybe it's helpful to also specify what we mean there. And when we talk about genomic capital, we're really talking quite specifically. We're not talking about a genomic capitalism. We're talking about genomic capital because we're thinking about it as a branch of industry or even better, maybe multiple branches of industry that use either genomic techniques, so that use forms of techniques based on molecular biology to induce targeted mutations in the living means of production, or that use genetic material as raw material in the productive process. 
Uh, and then related to that, there is also another business proposition in terms of using genetic material as a rent a rent yielding asset, essentially having either databases, proprietary databases that other corporations pay to access. So we don't really, although we talk about the age of genomic capital to kind of indicate that there is an increased importance of these techniques, but we're not seeing it as, as something exclusive. So we also argue that genomic capital is very intimately connected to surveillance capital or fossil capital. This is one facet of it, but it's not exclusive. As you write about, capital is always hijacked and kind of appropriated sort of metabolic biological processes. You know, I go to a factory, I burn calories, I eat the food, etc. I'm a living organism and that sort of process is being hijacked by the needs of capital. I just wondered, before we kind of move on to talk about some of the more specific things about kind of the medical applications of this stuff, could you just talk a bit about like what what's specific about what this technology does that changes the, the kind of way it can hijack biological process? Like what, there's like a kind of transformation that is kind of really profound that you talk about in the book where it's kind of an extension of this, but then also opens up a new at the risk of sounding a bit silly, like quite literally going under the skin in a different way. So could you maybe just drill into that a little bit and explain like what, what these technologies do in terms of that process and how it is slightly different? The, the transition that is represented by CRISPR and the shift to some of the newer genomic technologies is that they automate what was previously almost an artisanal labor process. So doing any form of genetic engineering with recombinant techniques was a very labor-intensive process, whereas CRISPR, and we can get into the kind of specificities of how that works, allows for that to be automated for the first time um, at a much larger scale. So that's why we see this huge increase in investment and in interest in genome editing so much so that we could perhaps talk of a new era in that regard is uh, following the Nobel Prize to Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier for the development of CRISPR and and even that is a contested history of who who invented, in quotation marks, CRISPR, and therefore who is worthy of privatizing the, the, the profits stemming from that. Um, Amadei, I want you to come in here as well, but as we're talking about it already, maybe as part of your answer or after your answer to the previous question, could you say a little bit about what CRISPR is for people that don't know? Yeah, um... Well, let me just uh, try to answer also like your, your previous question, then I go into um, into CRISPR. Um, but I, I think, yeah, in general, like in in the literature, even like in the promotional literature of genomic techniques like CRISPR, there is a certain schizophrenia in the sense that at the same time, they're often presenting as something like completely new and revolutionary, but also at the same time, there is this often the statement, oh yeah, it is completely new and revolutionary, but at the same time is um, 
it's nothing really new in the sense that we have been doing it this in uh, in a million of different ways uh, before, uh, and in particular, we've been like selecting for genetic traits uh, since uh, ancient times, and, and there is often this statement. I mean, obviously, it 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 is a reassuring statement, but uh, it is factually incorrect in the sense that. Uh, it confuses two levels uh, in the sense that on, on one end, uh, obviously, you have processes of artificial selection that exist since uh, millennia, for what we know, and that have been kind of like scientifically understood and systematized since the 19th century. Um, the idea that, okay, we understand, now that's what the origins of genetics as a science is about is like okay, we understand that there are there are certain mechanisms by which like um, genetic traits are inherited, and uh, we can use this knowledge in order to select uh, certain traits. But the mutations themselves, now the, the the emergence of a new genetic trait, remains something completely random and some, something completely outside the control of techniques. So, I mean, in the 18th century, certainly kind of like breeders could notice, for example, that a certain animal had a desirable trait and could facilitate its sexual reproduction in order to increase the chances that that trait, genetic trait would be passed down through uh, generations. For the first time in the 1970s, it becomes possible to control also the level of artificial variation. So also the level of mutations themselves. Now the mutation is no longer random and can be selected, but you have control over the two levels of inheritance. So you can control the genetic variation and you can select for desired traits. So, and usually like when we talk about uh, the biotechnology industry, the genomic industry, usually they combine these two techniques. Now they introduce uh, genetic mutation through mutagenic techniques, and then they uh, use uh, traditional kind of methods of uh, artificial selection in order to kind of like spread the trait through a population. Now, with... Okay, so what is so revolutionary about CRISPR? I mean, in, in terms of CRISPR, fundamentally, what is uh, new about this technique is the fact that it enables uh, the modification of the genome of single uh, living organisms. So recombinant DNA was essentially based on the uh, on the use of these enzymes. No, these uh, they are often described as scissors and glue. No, so you could cut off a piece of DNA from one organism and glue it together with the genome of another organism and create a transgenic a Bt crop, for example. No? So uh, like a Bt uh, potato is a potato that uh, has one gene that has been kind of extracted from like a, a particular bacterium uh, and uh, has been 
uh, glued to the genome of the uh, of the potato or spliced in in technical terms crispr in a sense doesn't uh, work in the same way in the sense that once again you have uh, cas9 uh, that is uh, the central kind of like element in the crispr cas9 kind of technology that is once again is a restriction enzyme so it's an enzyme that is able to cut the dna but is a is an enzyme that can be directed with a piece of rna that can be inserted let's say artificially without going too much into detail um so with this technology essentially it becomes possible to modify or to intervene at the level of the the genome of a of a single living organism is not that much about transferring pieces of dna from one organism to the other but it is about kind of intervening uh, in ways that edit if we want to use that kind of kind of metaphor the genome of a single organism and this and this is so and what is most important is quite banal is that uh, it is quite cheap and it's quite fast and it can be applied to any kind of living organism because you have the same apparatus if you want the crispr cas9 and just by simply adding a piece of synthetic rna that directs it towards a certain piece of genet of the genetic code uh, you can uh, you can direct it uh, in many different ways and within many different types of organisms. So, in a sense, uh, I think it's what is revolutionary about CRISPR-Cas9 is mostly the fact that it can be scaled up. It can it 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 allows genetic engineering to become kind of like an industrial activity that that can be done uh, quite rapidly at quite low cost. So, obviously, there are aspects of chance and randomness in scientific work, but as Marxists, we know that it's fundamental to recognise that there are material conditions structuring the sort of social practice of science, uh, you know, directing what research is done, what research isn't done, what research gets funded, what research doesn't get funded. Um, how should we understand that process in shaping this history of science and technology and, I suppose, shaping the way genetic engineering technology functions in the world? We really thought a lot about this idea of directing evolution as being at the core of this whole research agenda. And one important shift that we see is, first of all, the shifting political economies of science, how science is being funded, the shift after the Second World War into this Keynesian state that funnels a lot of money into the military industrial complex with everything that that entails. But then the increasing important of, uh, importance of finance, which really coincides with the early days of genetic biotechnologies as an industry. So the moment that Amadeo was chronicling before um, with Genentech, for example, really coincides with the first days of neoliberalism, of, of the acceleration of finance as a allocation mechanism 
as a way of directing and coordinating the economy. So what that means in terms of gene editing is also that finance and the calculations made in corporate boardrooms become increasingly important in determining which life forms actually become produced and which which life forms are made to proliferate. So in theory, we could be using, even if we take these technologies as given, they could be used in many different ways. But here we're dealing with a situation in which it's really financial calculations that guide the choices being made by synthetic biologists and molecular biologists. So insofar as kind of NASDAQ becomes a life-shaping force and something that these financial indexes and um, the calculations of venture capitalists really become the allocating factor of which research programs get. And we also talk quite a bit about uh, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency in the US, which has been really important in giving basically seed funding, basically venture capital to startups that have various biotech applications, then we kind of ask ourselves, well, what kind of life-shaping force is it? What are the main types of interventions that we can distinguish? And of course, they, they don't exist in isolation. They're all always in imbrication with each other and sometimes contradictory constellations. But in general, we see these type of life-shaping interventions as falling into more or less three categories. One being the acceleration of biological processes with the purpose of facilitating and accelerating the turnover of capital. So that's most prevalent in agriculture. We also see it as extending the possible routes of accumulation. So introducing new types of assets and commodities as synthetic biology does, or as even humanized mice um, as a medical model, mm, they fall within this remit, but as would maybe genetic de-extinction technologies, the, the main purpose of which is not, I mean, one of the purposes, stated purposes is to combat extinction. But if you look at the business propositions, one of the aims is to develop mon monetizable technologies, including uh, such things as um, artificial wombs or various forms of, of reproductive technologies that could be monetized. And finally, the third field would be securing, so a form of securitizing. And again, we see this primarily occurring in agriculture, but I'm sure it could be, uh, the analysis could be expanded. But again, it's about securing the conditions in increasingly precarious settings. So that could mean pathogen resistance in plants, so on and so forth. So these are the kind of three aspects of accelerating and intensifying, expanding and securing that we see as constituting this phenomenon that we call biopolitical economy, sort of playing on the biopolitics as a way of managing and controlling life, but one 
which can't be separated from processes of accumulation, which really guide how these technologies are being implied. So, yeah, as you mentioned there, one of the life forms synonymous with genetic engineering technology is the genetically modified mouse. And I don't know why, but when I started reading your book, I was expecting stuff about GM crops and CRISPR. And for whatever reason, I hadn't really thought much about genetically modified mice. I hadn't come across much about it, but you know, as you document in your book, they're hugely interesting, sort of kind of weird organisms and really important to thinking about the development of medical knowledge and, and, and medicine. I mean, for someone who has, you know, no idea, could you just talk a bit about what a genetically modified mouse is, how they're used in medicine and sort of when and where they kind of came into being? I mean, yeah, it, it, the first starting point would would be probably the the Oncomouse, so the, the Fortune magazine product of the year in 1988, which was an oncogenic rodent owned by DuPont Corporation, which was basically produced by splicing cancer-promoting genes into fertilized mouse eggs. So this has since then become an, a really important living commodity and living asset since the late 80s and maybe Amadeo can later talk a bit about how that's changed with CRISPR uh, but one thing that is really interesting about the oncomice is precisely this that the entire species is a proprietary species so previously you could own an individual mouse but you couldn't own an entire species so when if you as a university owned two oncomice and they bred in captivity this unapproved sexual intercourse between two patented animals would be a form of theft so dupont when this occurred took the university of california to or they sent they received a letter of warning i think the university of california from dupont for for doing that so there is this kind of policing of it it invents this new form of private property that then must be policed in various ways and then this this has changed with now crispr uh, there is millions of gene edited mice across the world i think it's probably the most prevalent uh, gene edited animal but uh, but i'm not I, i'm not entirely sure but i would assume it's especially in terms of mammals and it's been flown to space. It's had all of sorts of unimaginable things done to it. So it's an interesting case. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's interesting. Like the the mouse as an experimental body. I mean, it's um, its history is like deeply tied in with the history of genetics, essentially. And uh, I think uh, for us in the book, we started off, in fact, researching like the, the the most recent frontier in terms of like gene edited um, mice that is like this frontier of research on the humanization of mice and humanized mice. But then uh, looking back and tracing back the history of the mouse as an experimental body, um, 
it became incredibly interesting that history because I mean, it is an history that one could trace back essentially once again to the 1930s around around that time when you have the establishment of Jackson Laboratory that is like one of the biggest laboratories working with laboratory mice. And in the early days uh, of research at Jackson Laboratory, essentially the research was all pointing towards the standardiz- the genetic standardization of the mouse. So the fundamental scientific question was, how can we create a set of living organisms that are as similar to each other as possible in order to perform reproducible experiments across time and across space, but virtually on the same individual animal? So there is this like this this striving towards standardization and towards genetic purity, which leads actually directly to the question of eugenics, because Clarence Lito, that was like the early president of Jackson Laboratory, was also like a eugenicist. So he had this explicit kind of statements in which he kind of thought of uh, this research on mice to give also useful kind of elements of thought for uh, a possible eugenic program. But it was all about standardization. Now, I mean, the interesting thing is that uh, when, when one looks at what, what is genetic purity, is what they found out at Jackson Laboratory is that actually in order to achieve genetic purity, which is, I mean, it can never be achieved but as an approximation, it requires a, an incredible amount of labor and incredible, incredibly complex technological operations, like at the Jackson Laboratory, every, every, every few years it is necessary to kind of unfreeze uh, embryos from the past and, like, reuse them in order to kind of avoid... Uh, and the population of mice to kind of like naturally evolve and, and mutate. So it's like, in fact, what was discovered is that the genetic purity requires quite extreme technological operation. So it's not, it's not natural at all. Um, but then more like starting from the 1970s, what genetic engineering allowed was exactly the a different kind of uh, product. I mean... When we talk about uh, genetically engineered mice, obviously there are a, a wide variety of uses for which they're used. For example, they are widely used in genetic research itself. Uh, so how do we know today, or how do scientists try to understand the function of different genes? In large part is through essentially the, the inactivation of uh, genes in mice. So uh, there is, for example, the the knockout mice project that essentially has as its fundamental objective to knock out or to kind of like uh, produce uh, mice in which every single one of the genes, one after the other, is kind of deactivated. So basically when you deactivate a particular gene, you can observe what are the effects in that mouse. Um, so that's, for example, like one, one of the ways in which kind of like gene editing 
is used in order to kind of uh, use utilize the mouse as a platform to understand mama biology and, and therefore also indirectly uh, human biology. Then the, the humanized mice is kind of a different story, but maybe we can go into that later. Yeah, but could you talk about the humanized mice? Because that's well, yeah, the humanized mice is that is an interesting kind of uh, concept, and in fact, it's been it's a concept that has been around for quite a while. And traditionally, the humanized traditional humanized mice essentially were mice that was uh, immunitary system was somehow uh, suppressed. And um, so the notion strain is like the most used in this sense. Uh, and on which it, they were human cells are engrafted. So these, are, these enables, for example, for pharmaceutical experimentation. Now you want to experiment on human cells, but you want to, you can obviously experiment with human cells in, in vitro, but if you want to experiment with human cells in vivo, uh, one of the ways in which you can do it, you can take like an immuno, immunosuppressed mouse and engraft human cells on the animal. And that's one of the ways in which kind of there has been an attempt by the pharmaceutical industry to obtain a humanized mouse. Now, this is obviously a very rough approximation of what a human is. And uh, I mean, it's useful in certain uh, procedure, um, but also it creates uh, extraordinary problems because of the difficulty of making human cell coexist with the mice cells within a single organism. So, like with, with the advent of, of CRISPR, there has been like a second kind of generation of uh, of humanized mice, and like the the new frontier of research in this uh, in this field is um, is more properly known as like the sapienization of the mouse. So the idea is to kind of introduce at least like uh, parts of the uh, human genetic code in in mice in order to uh, simulate uh, some aspects of human physiology. So if you go if you go online and you look for humanized mice, you'll see that like there are different companies that kind of compete uh, and kind of publicize their mice as like the most similar to a human organism uh, from different point of view. Usually in terms, for example, of the immunitary system, so some aspects of the immunitary system, and once again. The mice uh, is uh, so it, there is this kind of like historical process by which um, that very simple idea of like using the mice as an approximation of a human organism to perform experimentations of different kind uh, becomes more and more embodied within the mouse. You know, is is not only just like a metaphoric kind of. Uh, idea of like, okay, let's imagine that this mouse is a, is a human body and let's perform these experiments. But somehow this humanization becomes more and more embodies, become a more and more kind of inscribed in the flesh and the genome of the mouse. So like one, one response to that is that things like this, you know, are not natural and therefore 
they are bad or they're kind of dangerous simply because they're not natural. That's not the critique that you guys have of this technology. Could you kind of talk about that problematic of kind of uh, of criticizing these technologies simply based on what is and isn't natural and maybe flesh out a different kind of orientation to kind of understanding these technologies and, and sort of launching critiques on them from a different place? Yeah, so of course, for example, organizations like the Catholic Church oppose gene editing because it undermines the sanctity of God's creation. And um, of course, uh, trans transgenics in particular troubles the Christian perception of life as this hierarchical chain of being. And it's precisely for that reason that people such as Donna Haraway have argued in the past that the Oncomouse in particular really implodes the bound the boundaries of the social and the natural and therefore implies a break from modernity. And I think we're quite skeptical of that, in fact, and we say, well, we're not that sure that this biotechnological transgression signals a break from modernity, but in fact, we see it as a kind of intensification of a quintessentially modern tendency, which is also a colonial tendency. We see modernity as really constituted by violent colonialism as part of an imperial project. In fact, some of the biggest uh, countries in biotech are the imperial countries. And instead, I think at the, at, at the core of, of our critique, it isn't the fact that the problem is that this uh, transgresses species boundaries. In fact, that is also one of the reasons why proponents of CRISPR proposed to ex exempt it from gene editing um, regulations because they say, well, it's not transgenic, so therefore it could occur naturally and therefore it doesn't need to be regulated. Um, so they don't distinguish in those cases between, uh, between, or rather they say because the mutation could occur naturally in theory, it's not gene edited, whereas I think we tend to see it more from the perspective of the productive process. So we say, well, it's still produced with these techniques. A more radical critique would be to say, well, the problem here is distributional. It would be to say, well, the issue with these technologies is that they allow profits to accrue to private corporations. And I think that could be something like the critique that we find by Mariana Mazzucato, where essentially we would advocate for saying that we should have a redistribution of the profits or perhaps we should have state-owned or biological engineering techniques under democratic control. Our critique goes a bit more to, I think, the core of molecular biology as a discipline and as a practice. And what we really have been trying to highlight is this fundamental tension in which molecular biology on the one hand makes visible this world of irreducible complexity and there's this continuous finding that oh things were a bit more complicated than we thought and at the same time 
more and more attempts at intervening in that complexity. And this contradiction comes from, at least in our view, goes really back to the mechanic conception of life and the, and the idea of seeing living organisms as a type of machine running a, a, a kind of fleshy hardware, running the software of DNA that we can simply redirect through some little changes in the code. So we suddenly start to see in this view the work of the biotechnician as the work of an editor. And Jennifer Doudna makes that quite explicit in her book. Instead, we see the attempt at imposing a mechanical engineering rationale on living beings as something, something fundamentally modern, but also something fundamentally colonial and something fundamentally unstable because this imposition of a binary rationality will always be in constant contradiction with the irreducible complexity of living beings. So that's why I think we see this cycle of kind of crises and fixes, especially looking at it from the perspective of agriculture, and time will tell if it will have similar effects in terms of medicine, but that uh, it's not that simple that we go in and kind of do an engineering intervention in a living being and then it stays that way forever. Instead, the contradictions will keep regenerating themselves because it's inherent to the approach itself. Yeah, I think um, in terms of, uh, yeah, I found it very interesting, this question of, of the different types of critiques that exist in the kind of politics that surround genetics and genome editing. And um, since the 1970s, I mean, like a major source of resistance and critique against genetic engineering has come from religious organizations and in the West, particularly Christian organizations. And obviously that is based on a certain kind of irreducible uh, conflict between the different uh, conceptions of life that uh, central to the Christian tradition uh, uh, and the conception of life that is central to a practice like molecular biology. So, I mean, obviously we know that like in the Christian tradition, there is this idea of like life as uh, a creation or something like uh, a divine gift and of nature as this kind of yeah hierarchical chain of beings. Um, as, as Erica was pointing out, and molecular biology in general is always based essentially on the idea that, uh, first of all, nature is irrational, that natural history is the result of kind of random mutations, and that therefore kind of science and technology through instrumental rationality can improve and rationalize living organisms through technical interventions. So there is like this fundamental tension there. But uh, in that sense, exactly because of that, I think molecular biology is and uh, remains a quintessential kind of like modern project uh, in the sense that it remains based on that idea that 
like the, the very driving idea of modern science since the time of Francis Bacon, this idea of like perfecting nature, you know, of uh, humanizing nature in a sense. But for us, what was important was not only to point at uh, uh, the fact that molecular biology continues to reiterate kind of like a very modernist kind of understanding of life, uh, modernist understanding of nature, if you want, but the fact that uh, it also obscures something fundamental. It obscures the fact that uh, what is often portrayed as the establishment of, uh, let's say, human control over living processes, uh, in fact, uh, is uh, is the establishment of uh, market and financial control over these processes. Uh, in uh, in uh, the introduction to a cracking creation, that is the book by, that Jennifer Dudna published after winning the Nobel Prize for her research on on CRISPR Cas9, she has this kind of like beautiful sentence in which say she says, "Oh, CRISPR opens a new year of biological mastery, in which the possibilities are only." Uh, limited by our own imagination, and I think like it's it's quite a revealing sentence uh, in the sense that uh, first of all, yeah, there is this drive towards biological mastering, but then there is also this um, this uh, optimism and this uh, this uh, idea that uh, the limits uh, and and what is done with these technologies is uh, is just limited by the human imagination. While, in fact, uh, from a critical perspective that is attentive to the political and economic context of, of which these technologies are part, uh, is quite clear that, uh, in fact, what um, what type of uh, mutations uh, are then introduced uh, is very often mostly determined by economic interest, by financial interests, uh, and, uh, and by by the necessities of industry. So I think there are these different, uh, there, there's these different levels of the critique. I guess the final thing I'll ask you about, I mean, there's two things that come to mind. One is that this, and, and reading your work more generally is like, is it's very hard not to think about it on the same terrain as things like Big Pharma in that you have such a tendency to, for people to kind of mistake criticisms of the distribution and utilization of various technologies, either genetic or other kind of medical technologies and place the critique kind of on the technology itself. Like this thing in and of itself is a bad thing and it has a kind of bad force in the world that kind of misses the wood for the trees and whenever I, I think about that, I always kind of think about like, well, how can you kind of articulate a critique, but then also a kind of like positive vision for the way that this technology works? I mean, and I don't mean that just in a kind of techno utopian thing of like, oh, well, if we can just have all this technology, our solutions will be solved. But in the same way that you would have a kind of positive vision for something like an mRNA vaccine, which undoubtedly has a sort of place in a kind of Marxist public health vision. I guess, like, where do you guys stand on how you see genetic technology in that sense? Because I know there's some technologies in the book where you're just 
you probably come down on different places on different ones, like, you know, maybe more of the kind of um, GM crop stuff you like. Actually, all the reasons that argue for this to be used actually are kind of nonsense. But other than those kind of examples, like, do you have a more kind of positive vision of of the roles these technologies play in a in a sort of I'm getting a bit carried away with myself, but a kind of communist horizon? I guess our approach to that question, which is one we often get, and we I think we're on the one hand trying to anticipate and avoid it throughout the book, because on the one hand, first of all, as a research project, we see it as something. Histor- uh, historical and geographically materialist approach to well what are the worldviews that are inscribed in these technologies what tendencies have shaped its emergence and I think for us when it comes to the question of how technologies may or may not be used in a post-capitalist society is that quite beyond the remit of, of of our opinions as academic researchers. And it's rather a question about how research and science is conducted more generally in society. So I think the question will be, well, if if science and technology were directed by priorities that were decided in a democratic way, whatever you you decide to mean by democracy, that's the kind of can of worm that maybe we don't have time to unpack right now. To what extent would these technologies be so well-funded? Take the example of malaria. So there is now a concerted effort by Target Malaria, which is an initiative funded in part by the Gates Foundation to tackle malaria by the introduction of gene drive mosquitoes. So that's basically, um, you could call it a genetic annihilation technology whereby you introduce a gene to be hypermendelian, so to be really dominant throughout the population to basically ensure that this gene will spread throughout the population with the aim of crashing a particular population, so in this case of mosquitoes. This is obviously an attractive solution to to private capital because it's monetizable. However, there are many low-tech ways that uh, something like malaria could be addressed. So sometimes the question of how can we use these technologies for good is a distraction from the opportunity costs of actually, to use this very economistic term, of course, of opportunity cost, which is in our language, but to the way in which it can direct funds away from uh, from other solutions that might not be so monetizable. So so we do see that as quite beyond our remit, but personally, I'm quite critical of, of, uh, of the way in which these technologies have been developed and the way in which they are being developed today. And I think it's hard to speculate about what a liberal, um, a liberated or liberatory use of them could be without addressing questions like 
reparations, decolonization, and then the question of autonomy. And then it would be a question of, well, would all of these billions be re redirected towards this type of research or would there be other priorities? And I think that also maybe in if we bring it back to health and the question of, of eugenics, I think it becomes quite clear there as well, because there is a big debate surrounding, well, if the techniques for genetic improvements, especially in terms when I say improvements in quotation marks, um, especially as it relates to germline editing, so heritable changes, there is some people have raised the question of, well, what if it was to be distributed by the NHS? What if we were supposed, what if we had universal access to it? Would that make it any better? Um, and so to give some context to that question, there is currently a kind of movement for a liberal eugenics. So the idea that um, human evolution can be scientifically and should be scientifically directed, but not by totalitarian states. So for liberal eugenicists, such as uh, bioethicist Nicholas Agar, the issue with eugenics 1.0 was that it was in the hands of authoritarian states. But if eugenic choices are offered to consumers in the marketplace, then what's the issue? And their disability rights activists and critical disability theorists have highlighted that in these contexts, you still have primarily able-bodied people and able people that are making decisions about which lives are to be lived uh, and are worthy to be lived. So I think we do really take seriously the idea that these technologies have been shaped through highly colonial processes that if there ever came a day where we are at the position of asking ourselves, well, should we keep using these technologies? There would be some really serious questions to be asked methodologically and theoretically. And those questions can't be refined to scientists, to only practitioners and scientists themselves, or even uh, critical social theorists, but rather it has to be a sustained and broad-based debate about everything to do with health, nutrition, the livability of the environment in general. So we're also quite critical of the idea of a kind of fully automated, gene-edited luxury communism, because we think that this type of colonial binaries and colonial plantation model, for that matter, would be implicit in such visions. And we really want to go beyond that to perhaps a more abolitionist vision of technology and society and oppression in general. A lot of this stuff and a lot of the stuff we talked about, it's very theoretical, it's kind of abstract and some of it's more specific, but a lot of it can feel very kind of um, future orientated. To finish off, can you tell people about the ways these technologies are being implemented now, like where they're likely to kind of uh, sort of inflict on people's actual day-to-day -day lives and, and kind of where we're at in terms of 
I guess a kind of struggle or kind of, you know, people that listen to this will most likely be on the left. Like, where should this be on people's radars in terms of things that they should be thinking about and and where it's likely to kind of create challenges and kind of terrain that needs to be dealt with over the next few years? And, you know, maybe in the UK specifically, but, you know, I feel like this is a very international thing. So maybe that's easier. Just very briefly, I think our main concern is that people sh should just be paying attention in general, that there are the there, there is a lot of movement happening in this industry in the UK with the passing of the new genetic technology bill. Um, that means that gene edited agriculture is coming soon to a supermarket near you. Um, but also that we we do see the struggle over the molecular means of production, if you will, as something really intimately linked to all of the other struggles going on right now for the livability of our of, of our social environments, of our shared environments, and that is really inseparable from struggles against empire, struggle against colonialism and imperialism, as I mentioned before. You know, the biggest countries investing in these technologies are the imperial countries. It's the US, it's the UK, it's um, Japan, it's Israel, it's Sweden, it's France. So it's, it's interlinked with struggles that go back centuries against imperial and colonial control. And then maybe Amadeo wants to say something more specific about uh, the, the genetic technology bill here in the UK. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I have to admit that we were ourselves quite of surprised of like, as we were writing the book, there was like kind of a fundamental transformation ongoing, uh, both uh, at the level of industry and at the level of uh, the legal causes and i mean the book came out less than a year ago and uh, in the meanwhile kind of uh, genome editing crops and uh, uh, livestock have been the kind of uh, uh, like the possibility of commercializing uh, gene editing crops and livestock has been introduced in a number of countries including the us canada Japan, Brazil, uh, South Africa, Israel, and um, the UK most recently, only like in March. And right now, even in the EU, the European Commission in July introduced a new draft law that would deregulate the authorization, risk assessment, and labeling of uh, new genomic techniques so there is definitely kind of like a fundamental transformation ongoing and it's quite surprising how much these uh, technologies were debated uh, only like 30 years ago back in the 1990s and now there were huge debates even both in mainstream media and within the environmental movement surrounding kind of the opportunity of introducing these technologies and the social and economic kind of like consequences of this introduction. And today the debate is quite, um, is quite muffled. I mean, there is not much, um, <clears throat> there has been definitely kind of a, 
a legal transformation, but also there has been kind of increasing kind of like corporate interest in this technology. You have huge investments and you have like people like Bill Gates who write pieces on the foreign affairs kind of title, gene editing for good and kind of presenting these technologies as uh, solving once and for all kind of like problems of uh, like poverty and famine and uh, climate change. So I, I think, I mean, if you if you go and you have the opportunity to go and read uh, Bill Gates' piece on on these technologies, it's, once again, it's it's a good starting point for thinking because I mean, definitely there is uh, an industrial transformation, but also there is a strong kind of ideological dimension in the way in which uh, uh, these technologies are presented as technophysic fixes that uh, uh, makes it uh, um, that would solve social and economic problems for us so that it's no longer necessary to kind of fight for um, for economic uh, redistribution uh, for decolonization uh, it's no longer necessary to fight for uh, reduction of carbon emissions because like this technology somehow through by adapting living organisms to capital accumulation and to the new conditions of life under climate change will will solve all of our problems and uh, i think like this ideological dimension def- definitely has to be kind of like resisted and it has to be scrutinized very closely i just wanted to offer a kind of related reflection about something that we we're definitely seeing a lot right now in terms of the ideological facets of these technologies and how they're being justified so as we say at some point in the book the malthusian alarm is being sound again and again so we we're often faced with this with this analysis in which uh, all of our social and ecological ills comes from human population growth and if you go and read any promotional material related to gene editing we're often presented with this kind of very sinister equation in which you have a growing human population increased ecological precarity which expresses itself both in terms of food shortages but also human health issues and in this context these technologies are being presented as a kind of necessity to to really stave off an impending doom this almost quasi religious narrative in which we are facing an apocalypse and only these type of technologies can kind of save humanity and that's also part of the of the narrative that that we want to resist and say that well the very ways in which some of the issues are are being framed here to to present biotechnology as a fix often obscures some of the real issues that we should be thinking about Thank you for listening to Red Medicine and thank you to Erica and Amadeo for such a great conversation. Once again, if you'd like to support the podcast, please consider signing up for a donation, giving us a positive review or sharing this episode with people you think might enjoy it. Thanks again.